You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our scripture reading this morning, which is in connection with our text, which is Psalm 90, the scripture reading, uh, Deuteronomy 1, verses 19 to 46. You may remember that most of the book of Deuteronomy contains speeches by Moses to the people of Israel just before Israel is to enter into the promised land. So Deuteronomy 1 at verse 19, listen to God's word. Then as the Lord our God commanded us, we set out from Horeb and went toward the hill country of the Amorites through all that vast and dreadful desert that you have seen. And so we reached Kadesh Barnea. Then I said to you, you have reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it as the Lord, the God of your fathers, told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Then all of you came to me and said, let us send men ahead to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route we are to take and the towns we will come to. The idea seemed good to me. So I selected twelve of you, one man from each tribe. They left and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshkol and explored it. Taking with them some of the fruit of the land, they brought it down to us and reported, It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord hates us. So He brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made us lose heart. They say, The people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there. And I said to you, Do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as He did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and in the desert. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God who went ahead of you on your journey in fire by night and in a cloud by day, to search out places for you to camp and to show you the way you should go. When the Lord heard what you said, He was angry and solemnly swore, Not a man of this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your forefathers, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh. He will see it, and I will give him and his descendants the land he set his feet on, because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Because of you, the Lord became angry with me also and said, You shall not enter it either, but your assistant, Joshua, son of Nun, will enter it. Encourage him, because he will lead Israel to inherit it. And the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children who do not yet know good from bad, they will enter the land. I will give it to them, and they will take possession of it. But as for you, turn around 
and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. Then you replied, We have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight as the Lord our God commanded us. So every one of you put on his weapons, thinking it easy to go up into the hill country. But the Lord said to me, Tell them, do not go up and fight, because I will not be with you. You will be defeated by your enemies. So I told you, but you would not listen. You rebelled against the Lord's command, and in your arrogance you marched up into the hill country. The Amorites who lived in those hills came out against you. They chased you like a swarm of bees and beat you down from Seir all the way to Hormah. You came back and wept before the Lord, but he paid no attention to your weeping and turned a deaf ear to you. And so you stayed in Kadesh many days, all the time you spent there. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. Though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is seventy years, or eighty if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, O Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Beloved congregation of Lord Jesus Christ, on any given weekday afternoon, you can turn on your TV and find a number of shows which exploit human brokenness for its so-called entertainment value. Maury, Jerry, and others have no trouble finding guests for their shows. And almost all the time, the subject is broken relationships of one sort or another. Stuff is enough to make you sick. It's bad enough that this stuff goes on. 
It's even worse when others make entertainment out of it. And even worse is that some people actually enjoy watching it, getting their kicks from somebody else's misery, somebody else's mess and brokenness. But perhaps there is no worse thing than when our lives and our stories could become the subject matter for one of those shows. We expect people in the world to, to live that way. But the church should be different. And when it's not, it's not entertainment. In fact, it's one of the saddest things you can possibly imagine. The sad truth is that also as believers, we live in a broken, messy world. What God called very good at the beginning has been vandalized in the most ugly way imaginable. Humanity is in the pigsty, so to speak. And this applies just as much to people in the church. And this troubling truth lies at the background of Psalm 90. The title tells us that it was written by Moses. And we've got no reason to doubt this. We take that at face value. And when we do that, then we, we read this psalm as speaking about the people of God wandering in the wilderness. And why were they wandering? Why were they there? Because of their unwillingness to trust God's promises. Over and over again, they would not submit themselves to God's care, God's rule over their lives. And they suffered for it. They spent their days under God's judgment in the wilderness. They knew the brokenness of human existence very well. And it's out of this context that Moses makes this prayer to the Lord, crying out for God's blessing and goodness. And so I preach to you this morning God's Word with this theme, the man of God prays for God's goodness in a broken world. And he prays, first of all, recognizing God's nature, and then second, requesting God's instruction, and then finally, reaching out for God's compassion. Like Psalm 73, Psalm 90 begins in a positive way by affirming that God has been there for His people throughout the generations. The NIV gives us the words dwelling place. Lord, You have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. But in the Hebrew, a number of images are called up by this word that gets translated in the NIV as dwelling place. God is the mountain stronghold, the place of refuge, the help can also word can also be used to describe the, the hidden den of a lion or the habitation. Whatever way we choose to translate this word, it calls up something positive. God is for his people. And not just here and there once in a while, but for all generations. In verse two we find Moses looking back as far back as he can, to creation. He reminds us that God is the one who birthed the mountains. God was the one who created the earth and the world, or we could also say the universe. God was there before creation 
and he will always be there. In other words, he is the eternal God. And so right away, two verses into the psalm, we're given two important truths about who God is. Something about God's nature. God is for his people and he is eternal. People, on the other hand, are different, have a different nature, different character. We're created, but we're also subject to death. And it's important to reflect on why we die. We die because, as Moses says, God turns back men to dust. Death is something that God brought into the world. Don't misunderstand me. The cause was entirely in man. But it was God who said to Adam in Genesis 2, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Adam ate of it. Adam is no longer with us. Death was God's way of punishing sin. Had Adam and Eve not eaten of the fruit, they would have lived. But instead, they brought death into the world. They, and and we're responsible with them, they reduced the length of man's existence to a nanometer. And that's where God is different. God stands above and beyond time. That's the point in verse 4. For God, a a thousand years is, is nothing. For Him, it's like a watch in the night. And that... By the way, that was the, the shortest unit of time in, in those days, a watch in the night. Men are swept away by this God. Men simply don't measure up to God's eternal nature. In fact, men die. And their existence is like grass in the desert. You might get a little bit of rain or a bit of dew, and then, and then suddenly some green grass sprouts up out of the, the rocky soil. But as the day moves forward, the sun gets higher in the sky, and before long, that green grass has turned brown and it dies. That's the life of man. You have to understand where this is all coming from. That's why the middle verses of this psalm, verses 7 to 11, they speak about God's wrath and anger. And we read these words as believers and we say, no, I'm sorry, we, we can't relate to this. We're under grace. We're not under God's wrath. It has nothing to do with us. Hold on. Let's work through this. If we think about it a little bit more, perhaps there is more to tie into here than we first think when we, we read these words or, or when we sing them in worship. Let's go back for a minute to the historical context. Israel in the wilderness. A whole generation had to die out before they could enter into the promised land. The only exceptions were Joshua and Caleb. And that's why verse 7 can speak of Israel being consumed by God's anger and being terrified by His indignation. God's anger and fury were upon them for refusing to trust Him to take the land in faith. Their sins, whether these sins were public with what they said or whether it was living in their hearts, things that they were thinking, it was all laid open for God. God saw it all. And so they passed their days wandering around the wilderness of Kadesh under God's wrath. Their lives were short compared to God's eternity, but they were filled with struggles. 
filled with brokenness. God's anger and wrath were upon them, and that fact is again brought out in verse 11. Who knows the power of your anger? For your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. The people of Israel, along with Moses, who in the title of this psalm is called the man of God, these people were consigned to wander with nothing to look forward to for themselves in this world but death. Sure, their children, their grandchildren would experience life in the promised land, but that didn't change their trouble. That didn't change their sorrow in the here and now. The present realities were that a whole generation had to suffer and then die. What does that have to do with God's character? Why did God do this? First off, remember that the psalm begins with that positive note of God being for His people. Their dwelling place for all generations. Keep that thought in your mind when we get to this section of verses 7 to 11. It's not about punishment and, and destruction for the sake of destruction. As if God is capricious, He just does it because He feels like it. It's about God leading His people, shaping them to become who He wants them to be. The brokenness and death they experienced were meant to lead the people as a whole, as a community, forward. God was angry with His people. There was wrath. But in His anger, He still demonstrated His care for them. He still demonstrated His faithfulness to what He had promised. Now we get back to that other question, the big question. How does that relate to us? Well, first of all, we can see it as a cry for the coming of the Lord Jesus. Moses, remember, had also written the book of Genesis. Moses had written Genesis 3, under the inspiration of the Spirit, of course. He wrote Genesis 3 about the crushing of the head of the serpent by the seed of the woman. Israel knew about this promise. They looked forward to the Messiah who would destroy all death and, and wandering. He would bring God's people home once and for all. They had the promise. We have the reality. We still face death, that's true. As part of a sinful, broken humanity, death is still there. But we know that Christ has conquered death. Through Christ, we know that death is the entrance into the promised land. And so we need not fear it for ourselves. You can even say it this way. Christ has redeemed death. I'm sure eternal death will always be there for those who, who do not believe, who did not believe during their lifetime. For us who do believe, someday the Lord Jesus will abolish death from our experience. But for the moment, we can rest with the knowledge that death has been transformed into, into something different because of Christ. Death still often hurts for those who are left behind. There's still a sense in which death is unnatural for us. It doesn't belong. It breaks our relationships. And so this psalm 
We can also read it. We can sing it. We can pray it out of our broken world, crying out for the return of Christ. For the day when death will be a memory and full redemption will be ours. And then there's also the fact that we're pilgrims in this broken world. In this way too, this psalm is a cry for the Lord Jesus. Because this world is not our home. Living among this broken humanity which is under God's wrath is unnatural for us and we don't belong here. Just like Israel didn't belong in the wilderness of Kadesh. Israel belonged in the promised land. And so we can read and sing and pray this psalm out of a broken world where we're not at home. Crying out for the day when Christ will bring us home. And so from this psalm we learn of God's eternal nature. We learn of His creating almighty power, His wrath against sin, but also His promise to be our God. God for us. God with us. Well, Moses' prayer continues and he asks God to teach us more. And that's what we're going to see in our second point where he requests God's instruction. I can remember taking physics in grade 10. In uh, grade 10 physics, there were a number of formulas, or I guess technically they were called formulae, to uh, to memorize. And, and I did my best to, to memorize them. But at the end of the day, did it change my life? Well, I, I passed the exam, barely. And, and I suppose it could have changed my life if I'd done well and gone on to become a physicist or something, but no. Memorizing all those formulas did not change my life. There are lots of things that we learn in school, lots of things that we learn in life where it's interesting, it's, it's useful for the moment, but it doesn't actually impact the way we live our lives. This is where the Bible is different. God didn't give us the Bible so we could win Bible trivia games. He gave it so that our lives would be turned upside down, transformed by His Word. And that's why we find verse 12 in Psalm 90. Moses asked God to teach Israel to number their days rightly. Now we might read that and think that that's on the same level as a physics formula. One could read that and think that it's just a simple matter of, of knowing your birthday. And with the, uh, the help of a certain website these days, you can even know what day you can expect to die on. Of course, barring any unforeseen circumstances. Then you can for sure number your days. You could know that this is day 14,432 out of 27,000. But that's not what's in view here. Learning to number our days is not an exercise in arithmetic. And it's not something where we get a bit of trivia that we can share with others. So what is it? It's about having a certain attitude or perspective about our lives. God is eternal. This human existence on this earth has not been eternal. We haven't always been here. We're not like God. Because of sin and brokenness, 
Our days have a set number. We cannot lay out the number of days and know exactly how much time we've got. But we do know they're limited. So, that's not just a piece of trivia. We have to live accordingly. How do we do that? Well, first of all, we live with an attitude of humility. When you know who your God is and you know how He is in control, you don't live thinking that you're the be-all and end-all. You keep your eyes focused on this God who's in the driver's seat. When you know that He's eternal and you're not, then you realize that He knows what He's doing. And you know that He cares for His people. And you realize that He is actively working in your life. And how are you going to live then? If you have this attitude consistently, you'll never make an idol out of yourself or others. You know, that's what happens when we're prideful, right? We set up our, ourselves and, and others as, as idols, as being our, our functional gods. We would never actually call them that. We would never actually say that we, we have these idols. But in reality, we have these functional gods. And this functional God, whether it's ourself or somebody else, is not eternal, is not almighty, is not all-caring. In fact, when we make idols out of ourselves and others, the worship is slavery and oppression. So numbering our days means having a proper perspective on ourselves and others. Realizing that there is one God and we are not Him. It means living with this perspective where we're not ruled and we're not governed, driven by what others think of us, but by what God wants for us. So an attitude of humility. But then there's also an attitude of circumspection. Being circumspect means that you're cautious and careful about your life. You're not being reckless. You know, on 9-11, I was stuck in Winnipeg. Around the same time, the mayor of Winnipeg opened up the school year at the University of Manitoba with a little spiel. He came to the university and he told the students, said, hey, guess what? Life is short and nasty. So live it up and party hard while you're at university. Get drunk, get what you can. Because before long, there's going to be a job, there's going to be a family, there's going to be all kinds of responsibilities. Live it up now. Of course, as you can well imagine, the mayor got a standing and cheering ovation from his audience. This was just what they wanted to hear. Moses would not have been impressed. God was not impressed. God's Word tells us to number our days rightly. Yes, the days are short. Yes, it is a broken world. But that doesn't mean that you take the old Epicurean philosophy, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Rather, it means that you make each day count today. Each day, by the power of the Spirit, you make a conscious decision to live seriously for the Lord. 
We all know that the attitude of the mayor of Winnipeg sometimes, sad to say, sometimes it lives in the church too. It can sometimes be there among young people in a little bit of a different way. If they, people think, I'm going to party hard now, and then later on I'll get serious about serving the Lord. And then they, they look around and they see, well, look at so-and-so. He's about 10 years older than me, right? He partied hard and when he was younger, and now look, he's married and he's got kids and, and everything is good, everything looks right. That's exactly it. Everything looks right. Because when we take that attitude, the change that often happens later in life, that change is often just cosmetic. Nothing more. Sure, he's not the wild party animal that he was. At least, not everybody sees it anyway. But is his heart really right with the Lord? Or is it all just about keeping up appearances? That kind of attitude, thinking that you'll get everything straightened out later on in life, that breeds cultural Christianity. Or if you want to put it in more blunt terms, it's hypocrisy. Moses gives the antidote to this poison. Teach us to number our days aright. For us, that means consider who God is. He is the eternal Creator who sent His Son for us. Consider who we are. We are recipients of wonderful promises. And if we turn our backs on those promises, even if we think we're just going to do it just for the time being, and then maybe in in five or six years I'll, I'll take them seriously, if we take that attitude, have we really understood who God is? Do we understand how He is so different from us? His Word tells us to seek Him now. To live for Him now. And the result of this is the gaining of a heart of wisdom. In the Bible, wisdom is a many-splendored thing. Many things we can say about what the, the Bible tells us about wisdom, but here's just a couple of things. It starts with fearing God And it continues in having a task and knowing how to do it well. The artists and the carpenters who worked on the tabernacle were said in many of our translations to be skilled. But in Hebrew it says that they had great wisdom. They knew what they were doing. The Christian life is the same way. We embrace the wisdom of God, which is Jesus Christ. We know our calling as people who share in His anointing. We want to live well, realizing who we are called to be in Him. And these are not things that come naturally or easily to us. That's why Moses prays for it for the people. That's why we have to pray for it for ourselves. We live in a broken world. And we have our own personal struggles Struggles with sin also. We need the Lord's good gifts to begin living in a way that pleases Him. We need God to work in our hearts and lives so that the the brokenness we experience here begins to be healed. 
And that's also why Moses reaches out for God's compassion. That's our last point here this morning. Moses and the people of Israel were suffering in the wilderness. As far as their food goes, they they were well supplied by God. But yet they suffered with the knowledge that they were condemned to wander without having a true home, without having land. That's why verse 13 is calling out to Yahweh, to the Lord, to relent or to turn back. The people of Israel, they were tired of this situation. They longed for God to show compassion and mercy to them. They begged Him to show His unfailing love, to bring an end to the dark night. They zealously desired to sing for joy and to have gladness. And from all this, you get the distinct impression that wandering in the desert is not exactly a vacation in Palm Springs. No, they pleaded with God to bring gladness to them. Gladness in the same measure as He had given them this affliction and suffering. They asked to see God's saving works that His glorious deeds would be be shown to the next generation. Well, God heard this prayer. God did show His compassion. He brought the people into the promised land. The next generation saw many incredible works of God. Just think of those walls of Jericho come crashing down. God's people had lots of years in which they could indeed be glad and and sing for joy. But as time went on, there was again an experience of God's wrath. Not just once, but numerous times. After David and Solomon, the kingdom was divided. A few years further on, the exile happened. The people were sent into Babylon. The temple was destroyed. The prophets fell silent. Yet God's Word was still there. Psalm 90 was still there, crying out this prayer for a greater compassion, a greater love, a greater joy. The promised land was a great gift to God's people, but it pointed to deeper, richer, eternal things. It pointed to the rest we have today in Christ. It points ahead to the fullness of the rest that we will have when He returns on His great day. And that perspective gives us added reason to pray. Verse 17 today. We pray for God's favor to rest upon us today. That today we would experience His grace in our lives. And we do that, when we do that, we also realize that the best and the most ultimate way we could experience that is if the Lord Jesus comes back today. We long for God's compassion in the brokenness of this world. What greater way would there be to experience that compassion than to be able to see your great high priest face to face? See Jesus. When we suffer, when this world is messy and it troubles us so deeply, brothers and sisters, we ought to be crying out for our final redemption, for the consummation of all things, for Christ's return. 
And this perspective also guides us when we appropriate those last words of the psalm about establishing the work of our hands. For the Israelites first prayed this prayer with Moses, they were asking God to bless the things that they did in this brief span of life that they had so that they would have lasting significance. And for us too, our lives are just a drop in the bucket. Each day could be our last. Whether we're young or old, doesn't matter. We could be called home or the Lord could return. So then we ought also to pray that God would work in our lives so that the things we do stand for eternity. And one particular area where we could apply that would be in the raising of our children and our, and our grandchildren. Do we take the eternal perspective in how we do that? Do we pray for help in having that eternal perspective? You know, because we definitely need it. Because we live in a culture and we live in a society that is very fast-paced. And not only fast-paced, but also self-centered. And when it pours in the world, it drips in the church. Sometimes more than we care to admit. So, I mean, do we take time to do regular family worship with our children? To sing psalms and hymns with them? To teach them the Word of God? Not just to read it, get it over and done with as quickly as we can, but to really teach the Word of God so that they would see God's deeds and splendor. So that they would take this faith and make it their own. We need to do these things. We need to pray for God's help in it so that He would establish what we do, that He would make these things meaningful and of lasting significance for eternity. Brothers and sisters, it is a broken and messy world right now. But the good news of the Gospel is that God has an agenda for it. Through His Son, Jesus Christ, God is in the process of turning this all upside down and renewing it. By the power of His Spirit, He's doing that also in our lives and in, in the ways in which we relate to Him and, and to one another. Through this psalm, God teaches us to hope, to pray for His goodness to be shown now, on the day of the Lord, and forever. He will hear this prayer and answer. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.